Last Wednesday evening, we finished our study in the book of Proverbs together. So as we continue our journey through the Old Testament, this evening we begin a new book study, our next book, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me, page 898 in my Bible anyway. Track down where it is in yours, the book of Ecclesiastes. Anybody who's never studied the book of Ecclesiastes before? All right, look at that. That's awesome. Father, we ask humbly as we begin a new book study, as Kyle said, that you would speak, Lord. Uh, speak by your spirit through your word. Lord, we present this time to you as an act of worship as well, and just pray you'd give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive what your spirit would say through this next portion of the word of God together. And we ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see the writer himself is no doubt, I believe, others would dispute, and you're free to have your own opinion there. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit gave to us the entirety of the Word of God, but I do believe it was Solomon himself who wrote uh, as the human author the book of Ecclesiastes. We're told there in verse 1, the words of the preacher the son of David, so we do know that this one who is giving to us this proclamation, your translation may say the teacher, uh, the idea here, remember the, the word ecclesia in the uh, New Testament, we get that word as the, calling, the called out uh, assembly, the church, uh, the word ecclesiastes, the idea literally speaks of an assembly, one who's making a declaration here to an assembled group of people. So really the book of Ecclesiastes is intended to be somewhat like almost like a running sermon from verse 1 all the way through, uh, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 12. Uh, obviously, we're not going to take it in one reading. Uh, on some of the feast days in Israel, they do read through the entire book of Ecclesiastes uh, to let it just speak for what is here within it. But it was put together in that way. It's certainly one of the poetic books that's given to us, and really, I do believe it is Solomon who is the preacher, the one making proclamation of these things, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, because you notice down in verse 12, we're told there, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, that's pretty much right there using the Bible as commentary in the Bible to really make a no-brainer in regards to that this pretty much has to be Solomon, because other than David himself, and this is now the son of David, we're told verse 1, and in verse 12, we're told that he was king over Israel in, in Jerusalem, king over Israel, meaning the entire nation, but reigning from Jerusalem, the only one who was ever a son of David that did that was Solomon. Because you remember Solomon's first son, Rehoboam, in a matter literally of a few weeks due to his immaturity and his foolishness, being unable to handle the position and authority that he inherited as a young man from his father's throne, he divided the kingdom in a matter of a few weeks. So the only son of David who was ever king over the entire nation of Israel was Solomon. Rehoboam led to the division of the nation and then basically lost the greater part of the nation under his rulership. Remember, that's when the nation of Israel became divided under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the ten northern tribes were what was called Israel, 
and then the two southern tribes were referred to as Judah, and that's really where David's line continued uh, to reign from. So it does seem pretty evident that this would be Solomon, and to me it just makes much more practical sense what we know of Solomon, the commentary we have about Solomon's life from the Old Testament, that he's the one who is writing this. And we'll see as he says here, glance with me in verse 2, as he opens up this sermon, this is exactly a great starting line. This will really hook you in. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, your translation may render that meaningless, purposeless. Uh, the idea of the word vanity there implies that idea. It means emptiness, futility, worthlessness, the idea is, he said, notice again, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, just like we have holy, holy. Again, the, the, the repetitious word means, you know, the holiest of holies, the, the most holy place. What we'll hear the idea is not only meaningless, but the most meaningless, meaningless thing possible, the most empty, futile thing possibly that could exist. It's intended for emphasis. And basically what this book becomes really is, Solomon passing on words of advice, he's giving a sermon, his topic is about emptiness. His topic is about disappointment, being disillusioned with this life. There's really almost a purposeful tone of despair in the letter, this meaningless experience of life that he himself undertook as an experiment, and really that's what it is. It's Solomon sharing an experiment to find meaning and purpose in life under this sun. Again, not under the S-O-N, the son of God, but under the sun, meaning whatever's under the sun, is everything on the horizontal here on earth. So this is basically Solomon giving us a record of his experimentation to try and find meaning in all different kind of things under the sun on this earth. And he's going to talk about knowledge and pleasure and, uh, you know, uh, education, and, and he'll just, you know, go through all these different things, finding purpose in building projects and hobbies and pursuits and entertainment, and basically he continues to point out this reality that under the sun on this earth, as he experimented looking for something to find purpose in his life, he explores all types of pursuits, attainments, indulgences to find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment, and he says, I couldn't find it. And it's almost as if he's saying, in some degree, I think it's a, that Solomon probably wrote this in the latter stages of his life, I imagine, writing this from kind of, you know, a perspective looking backwards, passing on these words of advice, almost maybe to some degree it was his swan song, his final sermon, saying to the generations coming behind him, listen, let me spare you the experiment. <laughs> Apart from God, anything under the sun on this earth any attainment, any indulgence, any pursuit to try and find meaning in that is vanity. It's worthless. It's meaningless. You'll never find true fulfillment in anything, and what he's trying to imply is in anything other than God. If you have no reference point from God, you're never going to find any fulfillment. And look, that makes complete sense because the psalmist himself says, I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. You hear what the psalmist is saying there? I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness, indicating to some degree that it is technically 
impossible under this sun on this earth to find complete satisfaction while still living on this cursed earth in fallen sinful bodies. Even with a relationship with God, there will always be a degree of dissatisfaction because we are meant for eternity. He's going to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And because we're eternal beings, we long to be with the eternal God who we were created for and who we're intended to ultimately be with forever through relationship with him. And so there is that ongoing struggle. Now, that term there, vanity, in verse 2 that he emphasizes, and he'll come back to this again and again, that word is used almost 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used more times in this book alone, which is only 12 chapters long, than in the entire Old Testament combined. He's going to use the phrase under the sun there in verse 3. What profit, again, what value, what benefit has a man from all of his labor, that is, all he endeavors to do, what he works so hard to attain, strives to achieve, you know, works to accrue and accomplish in all his toils under the sun, he says there, verse 3. That phrase under the sun will show up 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, again, because that's the reference point. It's referring to everything that's natural, everything under the sun, everything that's natural and observable. Now, what it's not factoring in is what is above the sun, the S-U-N, above the sun, which is who? God and the Son of God and heaven. And so he says, under the sun down here on the horizontal, he says, it is vain trying to find fulfillment, purpose, complete satisfaction in earthly temporal things. So if there is no reference point of having relationship with God, and if you have no vantage point beyond what's under this sun, he says, man, life is meaningless because it's hard to find real meaning and true purpose just in life under the sun. Again, that's why Paul says in the New Testament that we don't look at the things which are seen which are temporal, but the things which are unseen because those things are eternal. And that ability to look beyond what's just under the sun is very crucial. And Solomon basically, and we know from the history of Solomon's life, he conducted kind of this life experiment trying to find meaning and fulfillment in human life. And he searches for it, trying out everything imaginable. And of course, we know of Solomon, which makes total sense that God chooses him as the candidate to give to us this message in the word of God, Solomon, would you agree, this man had no limit to the amount of wealth that he could spend to attain anything. I mean, Solomon had money to do whatever he wanted to pursue. He could buy this, acquire that, pursue this, attempt that. I mean, live in complete luxury and opulence. There was no limit of wealth to spend. He had no limit of power to use to access and do whatever he wanted. He had resources to plumb the very limits and beyond of all human indulgence on the planet. And yet still the end result is this purposeful tone of despair, emptiness, emptiness, meaningless, meaningless. There's no purpose in any of those things. Now, again, just reminding us, we have to find answers in the reality that God exists and that is what we are meant for and what matters is living in light of eternity. And without serving God, nothing else will matter because life on this earth is very at times confusing. It's difficult. There are lots of unanswered questions. 
There, there are things that we go through that don't make sense to us, that we don't reconcile. There are times when we say, wait a minute, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let me just say, first of all, there are no good people. So that's all really a bad statement to start with. But we understand what we mean by that. Why is it, you know, here's this, you know, good person who's doing things right and doing things well, and why does something unfortunate and tragic happen to them? And then here's this person over here, they're, you know, mean and nasty, and they're selling drugs to 10-year-olds or whatever, and it just seems like everything goes well for them, and they have no problems, and they live till they're 95 or whatever, and, you know, just know, and we just, we try and reconcile those things on this planet, and we don't always have answers to that. And so if we have no reference point for God, there is that expression of kind of hopelessness of realizing that everything on this planet makes no sense. It ultimately will just lead to complete emptiness and a meaningless existence unless we understand the reality of eternity and we live in light of eternity. And that's really where Solomon, if you want to just glance ahead, just turn with me quickly, if you would, over to the, to the right to chapter 12. Because here's where he culminates his sermon, and I'll give this to you as a, uh, not the, as a spoiler to the book, but if you're completely bored with misery and meaningless existence, <laughs> uh, at least you know it, it does culminate in something eventually. He says, verse 12, here's his culmination of all this emptiness, meaningless, this is meaningless, that is empty, this is unfulfilling. He, here's the, the final conclusion of his matter, verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, as young as possible, he says, before the difficult days come. Isn't that fit? A lot of times young people, life's so hard, man. Oh, it's so hard. Do you know how much I'm paying for gas? <laughs> You're just, we're just, you know, oh, my goodness, it's so hard. I, you mean I got to go out and get a job now? Or I mean, just, and you know, things are sometimes very overwhelming for a young person. They start to begin their teenage years or their adult years, and they start to feel a little bit of the brace of responsibility pressing down on them. And he says, look, the best thing you can do in life is acknowledge and remember that you have a creator, you have a God who you're intended to live in relationship with. That's the primary purpose of your life. We were created to, to walk with God and to know God. He says, and, and sooner you can do that in the days of your youth, he says, before the real difficult days come, before the days really get difficult, because, you know, truth of the matter is, is it not true? The longer we live, the more difficult life becomes, because everything becomes more challenging, more complicated, and you get married, then you have children, you got bills, and then you got this and that, right? And then we just deteriorate, and our health falls apart, and, and, and everything else. So he says, before the difficult days come, get right with God. Get right with God, he says. You remember that your life is about God before the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened, he says. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 13 of chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. He says, this is my conclusion to all the emptiness on the horizontal on earth. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every single thing, whether good or evil. His conclusion Live in right relationship with God, reverence God, obey God's word, he says. This is the all of man's existence. And he says, and the reason why is because one day when all this horizontal is done, you're going to answer to God for your life. You're going to stand before God and give account 
with what you did with your life and how you navigated in your time on earth. So come back with me to chapter one that sort of gives you a little bit of a foretaste where we're going. If if the Lord allows, Lord willing, I'd like to maybe see if we can get through the end of chapter two this evening because it kind of comes to an end of a unit, if possible, of what Solomon's kind of conveying. And he gives us a little high point at the end of chapter two after a lot of, in some ways, very despairing, uh, bemoaning, if you would, of his frustration with earthly existence. So having said meaningless, meaningless, emptiness, emptiness, again, everything is so vain and worthless. He says, what profit or value is there for a man from all that he works so hard for on this earth and toils under the sun? And then he goes into verse four saying, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. So there he speaks of kind of just the transitory nature of man. He says, the earth abides forever. The physical earth, it remains. But he says, it just seems that that one generation gives birth to another generation. One generation comes, another one goes. You know, one man said before, the two pieces of furniture of human existence are a cradle and a coffin. It's very fitting, right? One dies, another is born. One generation lives, that generation passes away, and the next generation comes. And he says, earth just continues on, but he said, it just seems like it's just life and death, and life and death, and we're celebrating a birth, and we're grieving a funeral. And he says, it just seems that one generation after another just passes on, but yet the earth just continues, but man seems so transient. It's like he he just comes and like a vapor, his life disappears again. He says, verse 5, the sun also rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it arose. So again, there's kind of like the day-by-day existence, right? The sun rises and then it goes down. And then the sun rises and the sun goes down. And kind of the picture here is sort of the, the monotony of life, that just day by day, not only generation by generation, but this is how human existence is lived, right? We live day by day. You can't get ahead of the sunrise. and you can't, you can't make it happen sooner or later. You get to live life one day at a time, right? That's just the reality of human existence. We have no control over that. God has set that as a part of how creation operates. No doubt that's one of the reasons why Jesus said, when he was speaking about the, the struggle of worry in human existence, remember Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus was talking about help with not worrying, Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, for today has sufficient trouble of its own. And you know, sometimes that is just a reality, to be able to go from sunrise to sunset to manage the troubles or challenges of a day, but realizing we we have no control over that. We just live life day by day as human beings. He says, verse 6, and the wind goes toward the south, It turns around then, comes back to the north. It whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. And all the rivers run into the sea. Yet, even though they all run into the sea, he says, yet the sea is never full from to the place which the rivers come, they return again. So the picture there, though the waters keep running, the cycle, the hydraulic cycle, the streams, the rivers, the oceans, he says, all these things just continue to perpetuate but they never seem to ultimately be completely satisfied. They never cease to end. It's just things go on, same in, day out, day out. Creation operates. Verse 8, he says, and all things are full of labor. The picture there, full of labor. In other words, everything is work. 
<laughs> and, and isn't that true to a degree? Remember what, well, honestly, Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse was not that man would have to work. This is where people always get off track or tell they justify they want to be lazy and don't work a job. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that God created man, breathed into his nostrils the breast of life, put him in a garden to tend it and to keep it. So in paradise existence, Adam lived in perfect fellowship with God, and he did something productive every single day. He tended a garden. He was occupied. He was, in a sense, doing something to provide fulfillment. What happened when sin entered the world, Genesis chapter 3, is God then said, now the ground will produce thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your brow, the idea is now you're going to have to work really hard to eke out a living in this life. It seemed that work was just a little more enjoyable in the paradise existence, that it wasn't a, a, a cursed, miserable thing. It was something man did to find fulfillment and productivity and, and gave him a sense of purpose, and he found his identity in it as he did it in relationship with God. But when the curse came, God said, now the ground's going to be like iron and weeds and thorns and thistles, and now you're going to have to do the same thing, but now you're, it's going to be a struggle, and it's going to be laborious. And I think all of us know that to some degree, just the laboriousness of doing what we got to do. All things are are full of labor, and, and life is much of it, you know, working to just get by, to do what we need to do. He says, man cannot express it, verse 8, and the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Boy, that's an important concept, the observation Solomon makes there, how the eye has an appetite, right? Remember the, the statement we've often, many of us heard before, feast your eyes on this, right? It seems like somebody understands the idea that the, the human eye has an appetite. The Bible talks about the lust of the eyes, a craving that the eyes have. And here, notice Solomon says, here's something I've discovered. No matter what a person sees, they'll always want to see a little bit more. Oh, man, I saw the most beautiful place. I went to this place. I Man, the pictures, and oh, man, and, and I, I finally made it to Hawaii, man. And oh, I, oh, it was so beautiful, so beautiful. And then, and then they come back, man, I got to get to Alaska. I heard Alaska is so beautiful. And, and again, so whether it's seeing creation or whether it's in perverse ways, right, anyone who has indulged in, struggled with, and become entangled in something like pornography or, or using their eyes for lustful purposes realize exactly what that says there as well, that the eye is not satisfied with seeing. Oh, if I just get a look, if I just get a glimpse, it'll never, all you're doing is inflaming the passion and growing the desire. He says the eye will never be, no matter what the eye sees, it always wants to see a little bit more. Again, we see something that we want to buy, and oh, wow, that, that, and we finally get it. And then what, what happens already? All of a sudden now, your eye's already looking at the next thing you want to buy again, right? <laughs> it's just human nature. There's this constant struggle of dissatisfaction in the fractured condition that we're in sinfully. So whether it's the eye never being satisfied, nor the ear filled with hearing, the idea there is no matter what we hear, we want to hear just a little bit more. We hear something and we just, we always just want to hear a little bit more. It's that picture there of just human struggle with discontentment and dissatisfaction. Verse nine, he says, that which has been is what will be. And that which is done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. 
So I think one translation is renders those verses there, and, and we've heard this statement before, history merely repeats itself. And that's exactly what he's saying there in verse 9. He says, it's really frustrating, but it's just a reality. He says, that which has been is what's going to be. It's, it's just going to happen again, right? Things happen, and we think, man, I hope that never happens again in human history. And just with a different story and a few different details and maybe a few different players on a different stage, it just happens again. That which has been is that which will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And so whether it's the constant repetition of hoping in this politician to fix the problems and then it never working and going through a season and a term and then hoping again the next election cycle and getting our... He says, history just... It kind of tends to just keep repeating itself because humanity is broken and the world is in a fallen condition. And he says, truth of the matter is, as much as we long for the novelty or so, he says, there's nothing new really at all under the sun. And in all honesty, there, there's a truth to that. He goes on to say, verse 10, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? He says, let me tell you, it has already been in ancient times before us. So again, Solomon here isn't discounting the reality that something can be invented because that is true. I mean, inventions happen. We you know, learn new things, even as they did in his culture. So he's not diminishing the reality of humanity being able to invent new things or come up with new ideas. What Solomon's conveying here is this reality is when we get all excited about some new thing and we think, oh, well, we found a new thing. And, and he basically says all that typically usually ends up being is just a repackaged form of something that already existed before. <laughs> and now just with a new name or a new set of wrapping or some new marketing, we're thinking, oh, I've got all these really you know, new, and this is a new thing in a new way. And, and then someone a little bit comes along and says, that's not new. We, we did that 40 years ago. <laughs> It's got a new name to it now, but again, the patterns of humanity, the reality is who we are and what we're like in our human behavior, uh, that's not like really anything new comes about. I think it was one man, Henry Ironside, that said, if something is new, it's probably not true. And if something is true, then it's because it's probably not new. And I think there's great wisdom to that. You know, oftentimes we, we have this longing and craving for novelty, and we think somehow if we find something new or novel, that's going to make the difference. And look, we, we can create things constantly and make new attempts to do this and new attempts to do that. But what the Bible is simply saying is typically all of that is, is it's just a repetition of something that in ancient times before us, people were doing the same type of things in their own way, calling it this and that. And we're not often as clever as we think as human beings. And, and many times we end up just being what? We get so excited because something's new. And very shortly after we get all excited that something brand new has happened, what happens very quickly with something new? It gets old, doesn't it? I mean, is that, is that not just the reality of human nature? We, we get all excited, oh, the newest this, the newest that, and it seems so exciting. And yet all of a sudden the novelty fades so quick and it's old just like everything else. And then we're always struggling as people with, I'm bored of this, and I'm so unhappy with that. And, and he's just basically saying the problem is, is thinking somehow that new things that once weren't around before are going to be discovered. And it just it leads to a chronic process of disappointment in our lives. Verse 11, he says, and there is no remembrance of former things. 
nor will be there any remembrance of the things that are to come by those who will come after. Now, there's kind of a, a sad testament to the reality of thinking, man, you know, if you want to leave your mark on this world or be a significant person, and I'm going to accomplish this, and I'm going to achieve that, and I'm going to become important, and I'm going to have status and fame and recognition, and, and they're going to remember me for this and that. You, you remember when we were in school, I don't know if they do it nowadays, but they used to you know, like make you memorize the names of the presidents and things like that. And, and truth be told, why did they have to make you memorize those names? <laughs> because we don't remember those things. Can any of us write off the name of vice presidents or senators or governors or, again, or, or, or think of how many people who they may be famous and have significance and power and prominence, and, but it's amazing how quick as one generation passes through another, he says here, it's amazing how the memory fades real quick. And there's no remembrance of these former people who seemed so important. We just, we kind of tend to just dismiss that from our mind and we're often chasing the next thing or the new thing. And again, I think that's just a reminder that if we're trying to find purpose and meaning in wanting to have status and recognition, and that's a human striving point, right? We, we want to be known. We want to be recognized. We want people to know our name. And in some ways, you know, we, and he says, look, be aware, oftentimes that memory doesn't last very long. And even if we do something significant or contribute in some way, at the end of the day, what we should be concerned about is not human recognition, but God's record keeping. And that God will reward us. That God rewards what we've done and God knows our name and he'll keep track of those things. And that we recognize that not under the sun, but above the sun is where we want to be remembered, where we'll one day be rewarded for what we do in relation to God. Verse 12, he then says, I then the preacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under the sun. And this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. So notice now he says, you know, I figured let me try this experimentation. Everything seems meaningless. It's hard to find purpose and direction in things. So he says, let me make an effort to try to see if maybe, maybe it's through the exercise of knowledge. Maybe if I can just get highly educated and I know a whole lot of information, and I have all kinds of wisdom. And Solomon certainly was a man who would be prone to that because God had blessed him in that way. He thought, maybe through that, maybe that's the key. Maybe if you just know more, and you're more intellectually sound, and you have more understanding of everything, how it happens under heaven. And he says, it's a burdensome task, but I thought, let me try this. He says, verse 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity. It's like grasping for the wind. And you know what it's like when you try and grasp the wind, right? You, you never get a hold of it. And he says, I tried so hard to get a hold of how to understand everything, to be the smartest guy on the planet. I thought, you know, that's what they say. You just need a good education. So maybe if I might get my master's upon master's upon doctors upon doctors, maybe that's what it is. I just need one more degree. I just need to pay higher education, a little bit more. And he said, I found out, man, that was empty too. I got smarter, but look what he goes on to say. It didn't really solve anything in life that was significant. He says, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be numbered. It seems the idea Solomon's conveying there is no matter how smart 
mankind can become, and again, I'm diminishing the value of education. It's when we carry things to extremes, but he says no matter how smart humanity becomes, because God is sovereign and we are really such weak, insignificant human beings on this planet and really don't have much control over what does or doesn't happen as much as we'd like to have control, he says what I found is no matter how much I knew, how much know-how I had, that the things that are crooked cannot be made straight by me. In other words, Solomon's saying what's broken many times, it just can't be fixed. What's crooked can't be made straight, or what's broken cannot be fixed. Boy, that's a good reminder, again, when you think about the government, the financial debt in the United States of America, what is broken and crooked in Washington, D.C.? It ain't going to get fixed. That's an encouraging word from the Lord. Maybe it's from my flesh. I don't know. Do what you want with it. God says that crookedness... It's never going to get made straight. And I'm not trying to diminish we shouldn't do our best as stewards to try and vote ethical, moral, responsible people into office. But he says, and what is lacking, what's insufficient, it cannot ever be fulfilled or, or made adequate. It's, just, it's, it's, not a, it's not a human problem that can be solved. It's not a solvable problem by human effort or ideas. We're never going to really resolve many of the problems. Only God, when he returns and Jesus reigns as king, and when he takes over control, then things will finally be straightened out. Now, that being said, let me say quickly, too, the one good news is, is that for those of us who've come to know Jesus Christ, in a spiritual sense, what is crooked has been made straight. Because I was a pretty crooked dude, and so were some of you. And, and it's amazing how God can straighten out a human life. That he can do spiritually. He can straighten us out by his spirit coming inside of us and taking what's crooked and making us straight and where we were deficient and lacking, adding to us what we need to be righteous and whole before God. He says, verse 16, I communed within my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness. So there you go, Solomon. He was the greatest king on the earth, remember? I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all the men who were before me in Jerusalem. He says, my heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. Again, back in 1 Kings, it tells us that when God gave to Solomon the answer of his prayer request asking for wisdom, it tells us 1 Kings 4, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding, largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men in the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, mentions a few others there, and his fame was in all the surrounding nation, and he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, many of which we studied in our recent study in the book of Proverbs. So he said, you know what? I attained greatness, stature. I was known as the wisest man on the earth. Remember the Queen of Sheba came hundreds of miles to come see the kingdom of Solomon and to hear his wisdom. I mean, this guy had great, great understanding. I mean, he had insights in zoology and botany and biology. And I mean, the stuff that he understood and he would describe and write about, you read in 1 Kings. I mean, this guy was a brilliant intellectual. He was highly, highly educated, and he was supernaturally, beyond that, infused with wisdom and insight and understanding. And look what he says, verse 17. I set my heart to know wisdom. I thought maybe that's the answer. And he says, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly 
And I also perceive that this is grasping for the wind. It did, it, I didn't get a hold of anything additional, but one thing. Look what he says, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. <laughs> so Solomon says, here's what I found. The more I knew, the worse it was. <laughs> you remember the statement, ignorance is bliss? There's, is there not something very wonderful about the value of a young child who doesn't know some of the stuff that those of us in this room know or that we've experienced? And, and there's something beautiful about the innocence of a child or the naivety of a, of a child? Because is it not true what the Bible says right there? The more understanding we have of things on this earth and the more many a times we get more knowledge and more facts all we end up doing is being more grief-stricken and sorrowful and bummed out. You know, just go home, spend a few hours tonight on the internet, watch some YouTube videos, do some Google searches. You'll go to bed even more sad than when you woke up this morning because you'll learn even more. You go, oh, I wish I didn't know that. I wish this was, uh, now I understand that. Oh, my goodness. And there's something to be said for just keeping life simplistic. The Bible tells us to be innocent toward evil. I, I think there's maybe a reason for that, because God knows the more we know about evil, just the more sorrowful we are. It just makes us sad. Interesting that God was trying to protect Adam and Eve from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I really, folks, I don't believe, honestly, we were intended as human beings to know everything we now know in this generation, which is an age of incredible, fast knowledge. I think one of the major downsides to modern technology is we know so much more as human beings now in this generation than prior generations knew, and I don't think a human being was intended to carry all that junk, to know all that carnage and heartache and the misery and the horrible things that are happening, and we get it in the blink of an eye through our feeds and social media and news and so forth. And so, look, in some ways, if you have been bummed out and sad and sorrowful, maybe the thing to do is just to turn back a little bit and not be understanding and knowing everything going on out in the world. Uh, maybe just let God take care of that. And, and maybe sometimes it's just a matter of just maybe just focus in on your world a little bit more. Uh, that's where our highest attention should be anyway, our immediate sphere of influence and family and personal life. He said, verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. So he says, you know, it wasn't in education, it wasn't in learning, I didn't find meaning and purpose and fulfillment there. So he thought, maybe it's pleasure. Maybe I just need to indulge myself and have parties galore, and it's almost like he's the college student who goes away, and he realizes after a few, you know, weeks there, and this, you know, forget studying. Let me just party my head off. Maybe if I just have tons of fun, and, and that's the idea there. Mirth is fun and entertainment. He says, I'm going to test myself with that and enjoy pleasure, fulfillment, satisfaction, gratify myself, have a great time, but surely this also was what? Vanity. He said, I, I had tons of pleasure, tons of fun, and I still ended up empty. It didn't fill the tank inside. I still found something was missing inside of me. I said of laughter, this is madness. <laughs> and of mirth, 
What does it accomplish? I laugh until I cry. I party till three in the morning. And the next day I get up and I party hard again. And I get drunk and I, you know, dance and have a great time. And he says, and I find all that accomplishes is I'm still missing something. Something's still lacking. Again, because there's that God-shaped void inside of us that even indulgence and pleasure in any format, it it can't ultimately fulfill the God-shaped void inside of us. He says, verse 3, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh, look what he says, with wine. Let me try drinking. Let me try drugs. Let me inebriate myself. I won't think about things. Let me, he says, I tried, I gratified myself with alcohol while guiding my heart still with wisdom. I made sure I stood wise and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good in the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. Then he goes on to ramble off the list of all the different things he gave his best effort to try. He said, I made my works great. I built myself houses. Notice in the plural, houses, not a house, houses. So he had more than one house. He said, I took up building projects. I thought, maybe if I just have a few homes like the superstars, and if I get a few houses, maybe that's what it is. I need to be six months here and six months there, or three months here and three months there and three months there. And he says, I built houses. The guy had incredible money. He was able to do that. I planted vineyards. So he thought, you know, maybe that's if I have some material indulgences. I made myself, verse 5, gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which the water, the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants. So he thought, okay, maybe it's not in the material stuff, the nice home, the beautiful yard, the landscaping. That didn't seem to satisfy. Maybe I just need a bigger staff. He says, man, if I get a bigger staff, I could do more things. So he says, I thought, you know what? Let me hire some more male and female servants. Maybe if I boss a few more people around. (laughs) Maybe if I find purpose in building the business. If I could just grow the business. And if I can expand the business by hiring more servants. Again, that's what it is. I can't keep the business the way it is. I got to blow up the business. I got to double the business, triple the business. Again, maybe I'll find purpose in that. If I could grow the business, then things will be more fulfilling. And I'll acquire more. I'll gain more. And And he says, and I had servants born in my house as well. Yes, I had greater possessions, verse 7, he says, of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. And he says, and I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. I acquired male and female singers. Talk about entertainment. He didn't just have a pump and stereo system. He brought in the live bands, whoever he wanted. He didn't want to hear it on the stereo. No, bring them in. He was bringing in live concerts, male and female singers for his grand parties that he would throw. The delights of men, and the Hebrew seems to indicate there the idea is the desires of man indicating that, you know, indulging sexual relations. The idea is the desires of every man. And again, remember of Solomon, Solomon, the Bible tells us, had a thousand women. Wives and concubines combined. And again, still he said, it still didn't satisfy. Now look, that should be a great reminder. Let me just say briefly for any man or woman, period. If you can't find sexual fulfillment when you have a thousand different partners to indulge in, you are kidding yourself if you think 
that sexual fulfillment will come by just being with someone else. Solomon had a thousand women at his disposal to fulfill and gratify his lusts with, which is a perfect indication that's not how to fulfill yourself. And that's not, it's called self-control. And Solomon says, look, I tried that experiment. I had all the desire that any man could want. I had options. I could be with any woman I wanted to be, he said. And then musical instruments of all kinds. And I became great and I excelled, he says, verse 9, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. So he became the greatest king in the history of, of Israel and the greatest king really in his time period. If you write in your notes there, 1 Kings chapter 10, you can go back and you can read through. I mean, just some of the stuff that Solomon did. I mean, Solomon just built this throne of ivory, right? Ivory is incredibly expensive. He built a throne of ivory and then he overlaid the ivory with gold. Now, you know you're bored when you got an ivory throne and then you overlay it with gold. It tells us he shipped in from all types of foreign lands, you know, peacocks and apes and monkeys, and, and that he made silver in that day as common as the rocks in Israel. Silver was like silver. Who cares about silver if it's not gold? And again, Solomon had incredible opulence. I mean, this guy had everything imaginable at his disposal and his fingertips to indulge in. In fact, look at verse 10. I circled it in my Bible. You should circle it in yours, maybe even circle it in your neighbor's if you want to, because this is a great verse. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Is that a summary statement right there? Let me just read it again. I'll let the Spirit just speak for itself there. Solomon says, this was the culmination of all my pursuits. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep it from them. And he says, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. If I saw it, I got it. If I wanted it, I took it. I indulged, pursued, and ingested and invested in anything that was possible under this sun. He says, I experimented with everything to the greatest excess possible. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, he says, and this was my reward from all my labor. And I looked on all the works that the hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all, here's the end, was vanity, grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. God, everything his eyes could see indulged everything possible, any pleasure, any gratification this heart desired, never deprived himself of anything, absolutely anything. Again, he had no limits to what he could buy, no limit to the power of what he could just obtain and have for himself as a great king. And he says, and all that indulgence still never fulfilled me. It still never gratified the inward longing within me. It was still meaningless. I didn't find purpose in that. Verse 12, then I turned myself to consider the wisdom and the madness and folly. For what can man do who succeeds the king? Only what he's already done. He says, if somebody else takes over my position, what, what can they do? They can just repeat the same thing that I've done. There's, there's nothing more to pursue, he said. Let me spare you the lesson he's conveying. Then I saw, verse 13, the wisdom that excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, 
but the fool walks in darkness. So he's saying there is some value to wisdom rather than living in the dark. Yet, verse 14, I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. Now, he's going to kind of come to this very morbid idea here. He's going to say the great leveler is just death. And at the end of the day, whether rich or poor, young or old, no matter what our condition, death becomes the leveler for all of us. All of our lives come to an end. Verse 15, so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? In other words, here I thought, well, let me just live really wise. And he said, I realized the same thing happens to the wise man and to the fool. Our life has an expiration date, and we have no control over that. And he says, I realized the same happens to both of us. So I said in my heart, this also, <laughs> poor guy, is vain. This is empty. For there is no more, verse 16, remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. Oh, if I just live well, they'll remember me longer. And he says, mm, not necessarily, not necessarily, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? Just like the fool, he says, it happens to all. Therefore, I hated life. And the idea there is, I hated this reality that to some degree we have no control over really what does unfold in life on this earth because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And I hated all my labor in which I must, I had toiled under the sun. And here's why he was frustrated and he hated life because he says, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled under the sun and shown myself wise under the sun, and this is great vanity. So he says, man, he said, I came to this realization, all this stuff I acquired, I'm just going to give it to somebody else someday. And I amassed all this stuff, and I get to enjoy it for a short window, and here I worked so hard, and I did all this trading, and I sent the merchant ships out, and I expanded the kingdom of Israel, and he says, and then one day, the uncontrollable reality is this, when I die and my life ceases, it's all going to get turned over to another human being. And he said, and that human being may be the dumbest guy on the planet. He may be an absolute fool. And here's what's somewhat interesting. That's exactly what happened. Solomon turned the kingdom over to Rehoboam, this most incredible kingdom and in a few weeks, Rehoboam lost basically everything that he inherited from his father in a matter of a few weeks. And Solomon said, and that's completely out of my control. I can't even control what's going to be done with everything that I accrue. It may just all get wasted and used in a foolish manner. Some fool may inherit all my labors and all my money and everything I pass on. He says, verse 20, therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who hasn't even labored for it. This guy didn't even labor for it, and I give all to him for what I work for. This is vanity, it's emptiness, and man, it feels like a great evil, he says. For what has a man for all his labor and the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun. For all his days are sorrowful, his work is burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. 
and this is vanity. Boy, Solomon is certainly very human because he says life, verse 23, it's filled with times of being sorrowful, it's burdensome, and he says it also starts to include some really sleepless nights. Boy, can you really relate to that? In the night, his heart takes no rest. Solomon said, there are times where I just, man, I can't even get a good night's rest anymore. And I just realize how frustrating that reality is. Now, he kind of ends on a high note here, which is somewhat encouraging. He says, here's what I've determined. Verse 24, nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? In other words, myself right now. I have one life to live. Now is the opportunity. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who has good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also, he says, at times feels vain like grasping for the wind. Now, notice how Solomon concludes all of this. In verse 24, he makes a statement, which will end up being a repeated theme five times in the book of Ecclesiastes. He'll come back to this. And he basically says, there are so many things on this earth under the sun that as human beings, we really don't have much control over. And he says, because life is difficult at times, to find meaning in that? I don't understand. What's the meaning in that, God? What's the purpose in this? Why does it have to go this way? And, and, and he says, what I've ultimately found is that sometimes the best way and the easiest way beyond just living one day at a time is just to really appreciate the value of just the simple things. And that's what he in a sense seems to be conveying there in verse 24. Not, not the idea of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die anyway and life doesn't matter because Solomon knew God. What Solomon's conveying there is, you know, it really seems like that there's really probably nothing better for each of us to do than day by day just appreciate the simple things. A good meal on our table, the ability to have something to do, to find some degree of fulfillment, to enjoy the work that's in front of us, to accomplish things. And, you know, I often refer to this the reality of just simple pleasures. And I think so many times as human beings, we make ourselves so dissatisfied and so frustrated and so miserable and so empty, and it's almost like we exacerbate the problem of struggling to find meaning and purpose and direction under the sun on the horizontal things on this earth because we fail to just appreciate the simple things that Solomon said it's those simple things that are just from the hand of God, just daily living, a relationship with God, food on our table, something to do productively to find fulfillment and to find purpose. Turn with me quickly, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll, I'll leave you with this verse as we go into a, a time of prayer together. 1 Corinthians 15, I feel like this is a, a fitting tie to where Solomon concludes his statements. Because Solomon knew that ultimately the only place to find purpose is in God. The only way to find meaning is in relationship with God. The only way to find fulfillment is in relationship with God. Everything else, he says, it's so vain and empty. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 
58, the last verse of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, here's good advice, a New Testament commentary, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in, here's our word, vain in the Lord. See, everything we do on the human level, guys, the horizontal, the temporal, there's no guarantee that it's not going to end up being vain. But the Bible says the one thing that we know we can always invest our life into that will never be meaningless, purposeless, vain, or empty is to walk with the Lord, to serve the Lord, to engage in the things of the Lord, because that has purpose, because that is something that contributes to life beyond the sun that pleases God, that ultimately will be rewarded for. Well, let's stand together.